Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. September 11th, 2001. If you are above 30 years of age, the terrible events of that day are most likely etched in your memory and will be for years to come. Many people today are able to remember exactly where they were, what they were doing, and how they found out that the United States of America had been attacked by terrorists. In this 20th anniversary tribute to the victims and survivors of the 9-11 attacks, we will be speaking with three individuals, Neil, Amy, and Marty, who will share how their lives were directly impacted by the events of that day. Neil's story. Neil was working in his office on the 35th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center when the first plane struck his building. Amy's story. Amy was a student at Bloomfield College in northern New Jersey when she received a misdirected call from a World Trade Center survivor who was desperately trying to reach loved ones. Marty's story. Marty was a retired Wanakue, New Jersey police officer when he answered the call to assist NYPD as a volunteer in recovery efforts at and around the World Trade Center. We will now begin with Neil's story. Neil, welcome to our show. Thanks, James. Glad uh, glad to be here. Well, thank you for being here and telling us your story. Neil, I'd like to start off by asking you, what was going on in your life just prior to 9-11-2001? Yeah, so uh, I was 39 years old that year. I was working for a Kemper Insurance Company. I had just actually moved from downtown Manhattan, working for a different company, to the World Trade Center. Uh, for Kemper Insurance Company. It was August of 2000, I think I started at Kemper. And uh, so I was commuting into uh, Manhattan from New Jersey and uh, was commuting into the World Trade Center. Matter of fact, it was pretty, uh, it was good for me because previously I was working down at Water Street and I had to walk an extra 15 minutes from the World Trade Center to get to work. And now I was right into the World Trade Center, right to my office. And it was uh, was a pretty good deal. Uh, My kids were 10 and seven at the time very young in elementary school. And, you know, I was just in the insurance industry for, at that point, about 15 years or 16 years. So just, you know, everyday life. I had been commuting into the city for that, at that point, almost eight or nine years. Uh, but World Trade Center for only a year or so uh, at that point. So it was kind of routine to go into the city, but it was a new thing pretty much to be working at the World Trade Center. Were you excited to work in the World Trade Center? Was that a, a good thing for you? Yeah, yeah, I was actually uh, very excited about it. Number one, you know, pretty good views from up where I was and the easier commute. I never really had to deal much with the weather because uh, the trains were all underground and, and it was uh, right there in the, in the building. So yeah, I was excited about the move and excited about the new company I was working with. So yeah, it was kind of a normal day and normal life at that point for any, you know, mid-career person like myself. So Neil, can you take us through the events of that day, 9-11-2001. What was it like for you? What happened? Yeah, it was like a, a typical day. I, you know, I caught the train from, from Little Falls, New Jersey, and, you know, went into Hoboken, took the path into the World Trade Center, got my coffee and my bagel, and headed up the elevators and got to my desk around, I don't know, 
little after eight o'clock in the morning, maybe, maybe 8.15. I can't remember exactly when I got there. But normal day, I do recall it being such a, a beautiful September day. Sky was clear blue and, you know, just doing my routine and, and sitting at my desk, made a few phone calls, you know, did some paperwork. And, you know, shortly after I was there, maybe about a half an hour or so, uh, is when uh, everything occurred at that point. Neil, how did you feel or what was the indication to you that something had happened? Yeah, so I was just sitting at my desk and, and uh, I had just got off the phone, I think, or was talking to somebody, but I was by myself in my office and, and felt a, a very strong rumbling feeling and a swaying of the building. It swayed considerably uh, to the point where it almost felt like it was going to tip over, right? It, it, was, it swayed so much where I was sitting at my desk, uh, I had to kind of hold on and you heard like a rumble and a swaying and immediately at that point, you know, we all came out of our offices and went into the common area. We knew something seriously was wrong at that point, right? We didn't know what it was, but seriously, uh, something was wrong. And, and so they started uh, getting people filing towards the, uh, the staircases at that point. That's how scary it was. Neil, what floor were you on? I was on the 35th floor of the North Tower, uh, World Trade Center 1, which was the first tower that got hit uh, shortly before 9 o'clock, I think it was. But yeah, so that was the floor I was on. And I believe the impact, it was considerably higher than where I was. So there wasn't a direct impact or any damage to the actual floor I was on where I was sitting. But we filed right into the, uh, the staircase at that point, you know, knowing we had to get out of there. Didn't know what happened at that point. Did there seem to be any confusion going on on your floor at that time? No, it, it was pretty orderly, you know, again, pretty much calm at that point because, you know, we felt safe because the rumbling had stopped and there wasn't any physical evidence of anything happening that severe on the 35th floor, at least where we were, you know, uh, filing in. And everybody was coming into the stairwell from every floor at that point. So it began to get very crowded on the way down when people funneling in from the 34 floors below me. And about, I think maybe about 10 floors down, we started to see some smoke um, build up a little bit. We start tasting and sensing the smell of, of something. We, you know, at the time, we didn't know what it was, but it was, you know, gasoline fuel uh, going through the air ducts. So, you know, about halfway down, we all started, got pretty concerned. And, and some of the sprinklers had gone off, but not severely, just here and there. Uh, but everybody was coming down the stairs, kind of just wondering what was going on. Uh, there was speculation that there was an explosion in, in a transformer maybe, and then maybe halfway down the stairway, someone said that a small plane may have hit the building, but we had no idea to the extent what was going on outside at that point. Were you pretty much with the same group of people all the way down? Yeah, it was about two or three of us initially. And then as what happened, unfortunately, was as, as other people start filling in from the, from the floors below, we kind of like lost each other. Um, at one point I turned around and you know, was looking for the gentleman I was with and, and he was probably four or five people behind me because people were coming in. So eventually about halfway down, maybe three quarters way down, I, I had lost anyone who I was with uh, in my company. I was just walking down with everybody else trying to get out of the building uh, as quickly as we could. But it was orderly, that's for sure. It wasn't people running or stampeding because uh, we still had no idea what was going on at that point. Did you see any uh, emergency responders on your way down? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, you know, there were firemen coming up quite frequently uh, throughout my descent down to the, the, you know, the bottom floor. 
you know, I can't remember when exactly I got out of the building, but I would say there were several, you know, firefighters that are walking their way up as I was going down in the building. So uh, certainly was something in hindsight was, uh, you know, very troubling to, to remember those folks. I doubt that they ever got out. Uh, that's for sure. That memory must be difficult. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. Yeah, that that and, and then about eventually when we, we got across the which I'll I'll take you through in a second, we got across to the other side of the, the road and towards the river, you know, kind of turning around and looking up and realizing what the hell was going on. It was it was pretty pretty shocking to to everyone because I still didn't know what was going on until I, I exited the building. And they kind of shuffled us across the divider between the World Trade Center and the World Financial Center. There's a walkway across the highway there. They we're shuttling us through quickly. The police were, and it's just go, 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 don't stop, go, go, go. So we, you know, we, everybody was going across down the escalator on the other side of the road, turned around and looked up and there it was. Both, both towers at that point had been, been struck, uh, including the second tower that got struck while we were in the first tower walking down. We had no idea. We didn't hear it, didn't feel it, but that got hit while we were still coming down the, uh, the first building. Now you're out of the building and they shuffled you across. What happened next? Yeah, so a lot of people were just standing by the ferry. There's a ferry that goes across the, the Hudson at that point, takes you to New Jersey. And a lot of people were just standing and looking and watching. And uh, so I stood for a while just, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, asking people. Very shortly after I got there and turned around, people started telling me that weren't in the building, that were just there, what happened. And then unfortunately is when, you know, I started seeing people from a distance, you know, jumping. You know, at that point, there were, you know, that that's what really kind of, you know, got me to a point where, you know, what I'm, I'm getting out of here. So um, took the first ferry. People were loading up on the ferries to go across the Hudson. So I loaded up and, and queued up to get on the ferry. At that point, both towers were still on fire. Uh, went across the ferry and into Hoboken and just got the first available train that was there, uh, just jumped on it. And uh, it was going to Melbourne, New Jersey. So I just sat there and asked the conductor. Hey, you know, when's this train leaving? Said any minute now, just hang on. And um, so I, I was in the in the train at that point. It was, you know, before either tower had fell. The first tower fell uh, as I was going across in the train. Uh, someone had said something in the middle of the train ride that, hey, that you know, the, the tower just collapsed. And I asked which one. It was the second one that collapsed first. So at that point, it was just, you know, all hands on deck to get the hell away from there pretty shocked at that point, to be honest with you. I'm sure you were. But, you know, I got, I got home pretty quickly. I mean, I was, you know, back home and uh, probably at my house uh, before noon that day, which was, you know, kind of uh, surreal because um, at that point I was still kind of, you know, I soak it all in. And I remember sitting on my deck. Uh, we had just built a new deck at the house in North Caldwell. And I'm sitting out there and it was quiet. There were no planes flying over. And then Christine, my wife, had gone to the schools and picked up both kids because they didn't want them hearing about what was going on and knowing I worked there. They knew I worked there. They were young, but they knew. So she took them out of school and uh, told them I was fine. Oh, that's See, now, not only is your concern to obviously get to safety, but you were probably worried even though you got home fairly quickly, you're probably worried about Christine and your family worrying about you. 
Yeah, actually, actually, I had tried to call Christine several times. I had a cell phone with me. I actually brought it with me down the stairwell. My briefcase was left there. I just left and tried to call several times, and uh, there was no no circuits available. People were flooding the the cell phone lines, and everybody that I was with couldn't get through any, to anybody. So it wasn't until I got on the train in in Hoboken that uh, some guy next to me had a cell phone and was working. So I asked him to if I could borrow it because I wasn't getting through and I finally got through to Christine and, you know, she knew at that point I was fine, but that was probably number one after the second tower had fell and she had no idea whether the first tower where I was. So I told her, listen, I'm on, I'm on a train. I'm going to Milburn. I have no idea where the Milburn train station is. Can you just mm-hmm. come get me? It's going to you know, be there within an hour or so. And uh, I just sat there just, you know, just soaking it all in very tired from walking down the stairs it was you know that wasn't easy and uh, my, my my suit jacket was it smelled a lot like smoke and jet fuel and definitely that smell lingered for a long time not only in my on my clothes but in my throat as well i bet so that night and the say days weeks and maybe even a year later what was the short-term impact on you neil yeah, you know, the short-term impact was uh, after the initial shock, I, I kind of went into like, uh, you know, let's get back to survival mode, just get on with my life kind of mode. So, you know, I end, up, I end up calling a bunch of folks I work with, chatting about the experience, you know, quickly and, you know, what's next, you know, when are we going to go back to work and, you know, is everybody okay and that kind of thing. And and to be honest with you, Jim, you know, three days later, I, I started working in our uh our Berkeley Heights office. We had one in Berkeley Heights and one in Princeton. They gave us the choice and, and they told me I could take as much time as I wanted. They, you know, the people were very, the company was very good. Say, hey, listen, take some time. And I'm sure you're in shock. I'm sure you're, you know, got a lot to think about. I said, listen, I just want to go back to work, right? So went back to work and uh, there was a group of us that went to Berkeley Heights and, and we talked about it at lunchtime. And we walked in the building and people looked at us like, it was really a weird feeling. People coming up to me, are you okay? I'm fine. Thank you. You know, kind of thing. So I kind of just put it off and just went on with my life. And uh, I was very apprehensive about what was going on at that point in the world. I was very, you know, wasn't thrilled about going anywhere, really. Mm. At that point, was a little bit scared to even go outside sometimes because, you know, who knows what was going to happen. Then we heard about the Pentagon, obviously, the same day and the Pennsylvania crash. So, you know, it was kind of crazy for the first couple of months. But I got into work mode and family mode and, and kind of just put it behind me a little bit and started working. Yeah. How did that change over the years, Neil? Yeah, it changed kind of drastically the following summer. You know, the, the stress and the anxiety of it kind of hit me all at once at one point. Um, you know, I haven't told a lot of people the story, but I think I may have told you briefly, but I just woke up one morning and, and felt dizzy and passed out. And they took me to the doctor and he did all kinds of tests on my heart, my head, CAT scans, you know, treadmill, everything. And they just decided at that point, it was, you know, uh, just delayed reaction, stress and anxiety of what happened. And so I was, I was pretty much from the summer of 2002 through the, uh, maybe even early 2003, struggling with anxiety and, and panic attacks and not about the event though. It was never about like waking up in the middle of the night, you know, reliving it. It was just, I was just anxious. I was, uh, you know, very, uh, I don't know, stressed, I guess. So yeah, it was a solid year where I was extremely uh, anxious and uh, depressed as well. 
Yeah, I mean, that. I think that is totally understandable what you actually went through and what kind of things it triggered really in you to be sort of on edge. I, I certainly wouldn't blame you. I think so many of us who remember that day who were not in the World Trade Center or not in the Pentagon were stressed out and uh, anxious because of the event itself, but you were actually in one of the buildings that was hit. So I can only imagine how that impacted you. It was a horrific thing to live through, but how would you say that the person you are today, how have you been impacted by that event? Yeah, I would say a couple of ways, James. I mean, you know, in hindsight, knowing what I know now, I, I probably would have got the help that people had offered me at the time, like counseling and, and talking about it and, uh, kind of dealing it with head on, right? I just, I didn't talk about it much. I mean, I just told the story to a few people that I knew and I saw me and I never talked about it for months, uh, maybe even years. It made me realize that when you have a stressful situation or an anxious, anxious situation where something happens in your life, you, you need to talk about it. At least I didn't get help. Um, in hindsight, I probably would have gotten help earlier, number one. And number two, um, the short term, it, it changed my life in terms of, well, I didn't sweat the small things anymore, you know, kind of like, you know, I'm glad I'm alive and this and stuff, but you know, that fades so fast, you know, and it's unfortunate, but it does, you know, it, it's really after two or three years, it's like, it, it was a distant memory, but during the anniversary of each, each year, I would just look back James and, and, and say, and think about what I would have missed if I wasn't here and that versus, you know, dying or, or not making it out. Just the things I would have missed each year that happened in my life is how I dealt with it every September, even sometimes, even not even in September, just off calendar thinking about 9-11. It's like, wow, I would have missed this in my son's life, this in my daughter's life, this in my, you know, my brother's kids' lives. And so each year when I, the anniversary comes, I don't think about like, oh, wow, I'm glad I got out safely. I, I think about what I, what I would have missed, right? I mean, uh, my kids growing up and you know, my brother's kids growing up and having kids. And so that's really how I think it's affected me more than anything, kind of appreciating the fact that, um, hey, I live a full life, right? I'm 59 years old now, 20 years ago. And um, I can't imagine um, how my family would have reacted if I wasn't here for 20 years now. Think about it. You know, it's crazy. It's hard to believe 20 years. I remember the first anniversary. I remember mm -hmm. so yeah. much was going on and commemorating it and things like that. But you're a dear friend of ours, Neil. I remember when I first heard about the planes hitting the tower, my first thought was you because I knew you worked there. Thank and, you. Uh, we were just so thrilled to find out, actually find out pretty quickly that you were okay. And yeah. that was a blessing. But certainly there were so many people who were tragically killed yeah. um, and families that were affected. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just so thankful that you, you're able to share this story. I know it's not a story that you really talk about much. You know, we're very privileged to have you do that, uh, particularly now that it's the 20th anniversary of that event. I know there's probably a lot of other people out there whose lives were touched in a similar way. And we've actually, we've had some of those stories right on this podcast. And I hope that people will um, just appreciate what people went through and and came out the other side, not necessarily the same person as they were from before. So 
I want to thank you again, Neil, and I hope that the rest of your day is a really good one. Thanks, James. I appreciate you. You have me on today. Okay. Bye-bye. I'd now like to welcome Amy to our show. Welcome, Amy. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very happy to have you on the show because I think you have a very interesting story to tell. I'd like to start off by asking you, Amy, what was life like for you just prior to 9-11-2001? Like, what, what was going on in your life? At the time, I was living in North Arlington, New Jersey, uh, where I grew up my whole life. North Arlington is just outside of the city for anybody who doesn't know, maybe about 10, 15 miles. I was attending Bloomfield College on a full soccer scholarship. I had just recently turned 20, and I was starting my junior year of college. I was starting a new soccer season. I was working part-time at the video store. Um, so at the time, my focus really was just school, soccer, and work. Um, I guess like any 20-year-old in college. So you had a lot of stuff going on in life at that time. And by, by the way, you mentioned you worked in a video store. Boy, does that bring me back. Yeah, I worked at Dollar Video in Belleville, right on Bloomfield Ave. So a very busy time for you. So a lot going on with school and sports and working. So you had your plate full. Yes, very. And I was a theater major, so I was doing plays also as well. So it was it was a lot at the time. Yeah, I'll say it's, uh, I think that's what happens when in that phase of life, you got so much going on, because I think at that time, you're kind of deciding, like, what do I want to do with my life? What's next? You know, you're, you're trying to plan your future, but you're also, obviously, you're athletic, and you were probably exhausted from soccer practice, so you, you had a very full life at that time. Yes, I agree, I did, especially with soccer, because it was like a full-time job, really, in itself. I was being paid to go to school to play soccer, so my whole life at the time revolved around so tell me, Amy, can you recount for us your day on 9-11-2001? How did the day start off? And take us through the events of that day. Um, okay, so I was getting ready to go to school. It was just a regular Tuesday morning. I was up in my room. Actually, nobody was home at the time. I think my brother was at school. My mom was at work. My sister was at her house. And I was getting dressed. And I had just put on a t-shirt that read the future of America and how apropos now, um, but I didn't think of it at the time at all. And I was about to leave and my phone rang and I answered it and it was my mom. And she said, you need to put on the news. Something happened in the city. You know, she's like, can you tell me what's going on? So I turned on the TV and that's when I saw that the first tower had gotten hit. I saw the smoke and the fire. And I told my mom, I said, I don't know. A plane hit one of the towers. And as I was watching, the second plane hit at that time. And where I lived in North Arlington, in the back bedroom, if you look out the window, you can see part of Manhattan. Mm. So that's how close we were. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know where to go. I knew I was alone in my house, and I knew at that moment I did not want to be alone. 
I didn't know where to go. I said to my mom, like, where do I go? I didn't know if I was going to die at that moment, you know, being so close to Manhattan. So I chose to go to school. I knew there was people there. So I told my mom, listen, I'm going to leave and go to school because I don't know where else to go. So I got in my car. I was shaking. I was trying to get the key to start. And I started driving west towards Bloomfield. And as I was driving up Bloomfield Ave, Belleville Ave and Bloomfield Ave, there was every fire truck, ambulance, police car from every town just whizzing past me as fast as possible towards Manhattan. And at the time, like, I didn't know it was a terror attack. I just knew something bad was happening. And I could hear planes flying over me, and I didn't know, like, are they going to land on me? Are they going to hit something else? So I just got to school as fast as I possibly could. Amy, I want to ask you, so you didn't really know what was going on. So what kind of scenarios were floating through your head at this point? Honestly, hearing the planes, I guess, like as I was driving was the scariest part because I, I didn't know, like at the time, I knew something was happening. I didn't know what exactly was happening because I, I didn't hear yet that it was a terror attack and that came later. But I really thought like a plane was going to fall on me. That's what I was thinking. I didn't know. I knew it was some kind of attack, but, you know, at the time, I was 20 years old. I have never experienced anything like this, and not I don't think anyone ever has. Mm. And I was terrified. I was terrified for my life, and I was so scared. And being alone, I guess, was the scariest part. Yeah. And I didn't know. Like my, my mom worked at Prudential. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what if they, they're hitting the towers? That's a financial building. Like, what if they hit Prudential? What if, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen to my mom. I was thinking about that. And that was, like, my main concern at the time. It's like, what if they're hitting, like, all financial buildings? And that probably was the scariest part for me. Yeah, yeah, because, and one of the things you mentioned was you didn't want to be alone because, I think when something really scary is going on like that, you want to be around your family or people who are close to you, but but I guess you just want to be around somebody so you can come out of your head because alone you're you're just wondering about what it could be. You're not you're not interacting with anybody else. So that was your point in going to school at that point, right? Yes, um, because everyone, I, my family was at work. My parents were at work. My brother was uh, in, in high school, so he was in class. No, None of my neighbors were home because they were all working. Like I was literally alone. And the only place at that very moment I could think of to go was, was back to school. Because I knew there were people that lived on campus. I knew people were, you know, going to class. So I knew at least there I would find someone that I knew to be with. And I didn't have to be alone or experience this by myself which was scary for a 20 year old. Of course, of course. And yeah, what happened when you got to school? So when I got there, I went straight into the theater. That's the first place I thought to go um, and find my classmates um, because we were going to have theater class at the time. So when I ran in, everyone was crying and shaking and no one knew what was happening. And while we're in the theater, you could hear planes flying over us. And we didn't know, you know, were they 
regular planes? Was it the military? Like, we just didn't know at the time what was going to happen. So we all decided to sit in a circle and hold hands because we didn't know if we were going to die. Um, so my teacher said a prayer, mm-hmm. and then he said, guys, like, you can leave. Go home. Go to your family. You know, you don't have to stay here. So we all kind of just went our separate ways. And I knew I couldn't go home because there's nobody home. And I was so close to the city. So I didn't want to go home. So I headed to the student lounge. When I got there, there was a lot of students there all together, like trying to figure out what was happening. And my cell phone was working. No one else's cell phone was working that day, which was very weird. So I was able to get in touch with my mom once. And I, I was like calling and calling and calling. She finally answered one time and she said she was okay, but she had no idea, you know, what time she was going to be home, how she was going to get home. Cause you know, she didn't know what was happening either. And I think she was working in, she was for Prudential. I don't know if she was in Roseland at the time or in um, Newark. So I, I can't remember which one she was at, but she didn't know, you know, how she was going to get home either. So she told me, just stay there for right now. I said, okay. So I went back in the student center and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching the television and we're watching, you know, all the live events happening. And the tower, the one, the first tower starts to fall as I'm watching television and my phone rings and I answer it and I say, hello. And there's this, there was a pause and then there was this voice. And he said, hello. And I, I, didn't, I didn't recognize the voice. And I said, who is this? And he said, can you please help me? I just got out of the tower. And I'm trying to reach my family. And I thought, my first thought was, is this a joke? Like, I was like, who, like, what kind of mean joke is this? Like, why would you call someone and say this? Yeah. And he started crying. And he said, I'm not this isn't a joke. Like I'm really like, this is for real. I just got out of the towers. I'm trying to call my mom. I don't know how I got to you, but can you please help me? And I said, yeah, of course. And I kind of panicked a little bit because I was watching the events unfold while I'm talking live to someone there. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, want to mess it up so I found my teacher and I said can you please help us and his name was Michael and he was trying to reach his parents in South Carolina mm-hmm. and it's I guess because all the phones weren't working he was trying to reach 803 7364 and three other numbers my cell phone is the same number but with a 201 area code so somehow when he was calling South Carolina, all the phone wires got just like all discombobulated and it called my phone. So me and my teacher got his parents' number and he told him we would call them. And he said, thank you. And he said, I really appreciate it. And he hung up. So me and my teacher called his family and of course they didn't answer. Right. And we left a message and I felt terrible that they didn't answer 
I couldn't imagine what his family must have been going through at that time. Yeah. They must have been terrified, not knowing. And so we called back again, still no answer. So we said, my sister said, okay, well, we left a message. There's nothing else we can do unless, you know, you want to call back. So at that time, I left the student center and I went to the gym to go see if any of my teammates were there from soccer. And I saw my athletic director and I asked, hey, I told her what's happening. And I said, hey, Sheila, can, uh, can you help me? Can we call again? Because I, I want them to know their son is alive. And I just, it's not sitting well with me that they're not answering. Right. So we called back again and still no answer. We left another message. And I don't know why I, I felt the need to keep calling. I just wanted them to know because I don't know how long from the time they found out about what was happening in the tower to when they heard that message. It could have been five minutes. It could have been an hour. It could have been 12 hours. And knowing that they were going through the agony with not knowing um, really just didn't, it really affected me. So they still didn't answer. And that was it. I didn't know, you know, after that, what was going to happen. So a week later, I went to school and I went into the gym. I had a soccer game and my athletic director said, I need to talk to you. And I said, um, okay. So I was a little nervous. I thought maybe I was in trouble for something because <laughs> <laughs> she said I need you to sit down. And I was like, oh, great. I'm in the office. So, you know, tell me to sit down. Like I was like, what did I do? Like, yeah. I don't remember doing anything, you know, because I had a scholarship. I was like, I don't, I didn't do anything to mess it up. And she said, I have, I have a surprise for you. I was like, a surprise for me. I was like, that's weird. And she said, are you ready? And I was like, okay, this is odd. And she hit play on the answering machine. And it said, hello, this is Michael. And um, he said, I'm leaving this voicemail for Amy. And my family and I just wanted to thank her for what she did that day. Sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. And that they were grateful and thankful for me calling them. And that was it. And it was the best message I think I've ever heard. Because, one, I knew he was alive. Because I didn't know what happened to him. And, two, his family finally got the message and was able to have, you know, some peace knowing that their son was alive. After that, this is the last time I ever heard his voice. And, you know, he's been with me for 20 years. Amy, I can only imagine from what you're telling me how you must have felt when you when you got that message because as you said that you were really worried about how the family was feeling and as you said you didn't know whether it was a, a five minutes or 12 hours that they didn't know and if we put ourselves in michael's parents place thinking our son was in that building and the building is no longer it's crumbled it was hit by a plane they likely didn't know what floor he was on or whether he was alive or dead. And, and you were thinking how you were putting yourself in their place, but also I think 
in Michael's place in knowing how much his parents must have been worrying. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, you know, part of it was because I couldn't get in touch with my own family that day because the phones weren't working. So I only got to talk to my mom once. I had no idea where she was or what happened to her. I didn't know where my siblings were. I didn't know where my dad was. Like, I just didn't hear from anybody. So knowing how I felt, I could have only imagined what they were going through because they were literally in the thick of it and experiencing it firsthand. Mm -hmm. And while I was experiencing it and while I was very close to it, I wasn't there. So I'm sure it was tenfold for them. I know how it affected me. I can only imagine how it affected them. Oh, yeah. What, what was the rest of your day like that day after you heard that message? After that message, it was, I felt some sort of like calmness and peace of knowing he was alive, knowing he made it home. That really gave me some sort of calmness. But I do remember when I got home the day of September 11th, from our house, you could see the smoke from Manhattan. And I remember sitting in the backyard and I remember the ash from the towers falling in our backyard. And that's how close I was to the city. Oh, wow. Um, and it's just covering the backyard. And I was like, what is this? And at first I thought it was snowing. And I was like, what's and then I realized like what actually it was and that it was the ashes from the towers and the smoke. And I, I couldn't believe it reached all the way to me. And it was, it was very harrowing. Mm, harrowing. It yeah. was, it was eerie. And I remember going into Lynnhurst, going to this, the, on top of a hill and you can see the skyline like perfectly. There was nothing blocking it. And the, Sky was just on fire that night and we literally just watched it and there was like it was so terrifying knowing there was buildings there that no longer were and it was heartbreaking it was definitely heartbreaking and you i mean you had a connection in uh, in several ways one you know you were contacted by somebody you entered the lives of a family that must have been terrified and also, you were very close to the city. And here in northern New Jersey, we are, but you actually could see the skyline and you had ashes from the events of the day landing in your backyard. So you were very much involved in that day. And, uh, you know, to start the day off alone when it happened and finding out alone. I know when I found out, I was in an office full of people. So, you know, you are hearing others and others are verifying that this is indeed happening and uh you just wanted to find community and little did you know you were going to find more than that you were going to actually be brought right into a family's ordeal yeah it wasn't something i ever thought would happen and not just because of the you know the attack obviously none of us thought that could ever happen but i never would have imagined being involved in it in the way i was i don't hear a lot of stories like it um, I don't know why it happened. I guess, you know, people enter each other's lives uh, for a reason. Even if it was for a brief moment, there is a reason for it. I've yet to figure that out. Um, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad 
that I was able, not that I'm glad it happened, but I was glad I was able to bring him and his family peace for that day, for one moment of time. Um, during that incredible, terrible tragedy, there was one moment of good. Yes. And, and um, that's all I can be grateful for. And you were part of it. You were definitely yeah. part of it. Now, I could tell by the emotion in your voice, Amy, that this, this really still impacts you. How exactly has that experience that day impacted your life today, the person you are today? Um, I think about Michael a lot. He's a person that's been with me for 20 years. Uh, a stranger I've never met. I have, you know, I don't know what he looks like. Uh, but he is definitely a part of me. Mm. His voice will forever be in my, my, my mind. It's something I will never forget. But I do, I always try to help people when I can. And I, I think I've always been that way, but that was definitely a catalyst to how I try to live my life. I don't have a lot, but I do try to be helpful where I can be helpful to show kindness, to show compassion, to show empathy. I think that moment and time is what shaped me to be that person today. Oh, that was such an important day. Uh, it was important that Michael, by whether it be divine intervention or a you know a crossed wire, you were the person who was meant to speak to Michael that day and communicate to his family that he was okay. And I I, I believe that. Um, that you were you were the one who was supposed to receive that call that day, and uh, you played an important part. And I want to ask you this: If you could get in touch with Michael today, if by some chance uh, somebody heard this podcast and heard some of those numbers in his phone number, and somehow somebody gets the story to Michael and he hears about this and you were able to speak with him, what would you want to say to him? I think the first thing that would probably, I would say um, after probably crying for quite a while, um, would be it's nice to hear your voice again. That would probably be my first reaction. But after that and after the shock of, hearing it again um i would like to thank him for calling me back and letting me know he was alive and mm. he was okay and i would like to know who like where he is in life today is he married does he have a family does he have children what does he do for a living i would just like to get to know the person uh that has been with me this whole time Amy, I'm sure wherever Michael is, as we come up on 20 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, he's probably thinking about you today as well. So if Michael or his family hear this story, I hope they'll contact our podcast at yhyspodcast at gmail.com, and we will notify Amy. Amy, I want to thank you so much for this heartfelt story. It's very powerful as we come up on the anniversary to remember, there's a lot of good out there. There's a lot of good-hearted people. You're one of them, Amy. And, and Michael and his family for taking the time, even though 
they were going through their own stuff, I'm sure, emotionally right after the attack, that they took the time to call and contact you again and thank you. And I think that's just sort of a, uh, a testament to the unity that did exist at that time, and it's very inspirational. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you have a very nice day, and I hope we hear from Michael. I hope so, too. I hope this uh, gets out and maybe he'll actually hear it. Thanks, Amy. Thank you so much. I'd now like to welcome Marty to our show. Welcome, Marty. Hi, James. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Now, Marty, you were a guest on a previous podcast of ours, Season 1, Episode 2, titled Heroes of the Aircraft Carrier, the USS Enterprise. I want to highly recommend to our listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, to go back and listen to it, and I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it. Marty, you were in the U.S. Navy, and you were aboard that ship, and you told us that story, but you also mentioned that you went into law enforcement and that you had a lengthy career. Can you tell us what years were you in law enforcement? When did you start, and when did you retire? Uh, yeah, I actually started my career in 1973, and I uh, retired in 1999. I put in 25 years. Terrific. 25 years, and you were in uh, Wanakue, New Jersey. That's where you were a police officer, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, Marty, on September 11th, 2001, you would have been retired at that point. Can you tell us about that day that you found out what happened with the terrorist attacks? Yeah. Actually, my son Christopher at that time was receiving uh, cancer treatments. He had leukemia. Mm. And he was, um, he was home after having a, a chemo treatment, and he was in his room and he asked if I would go out and grab him a bottle of Gatorade. So I, uh, I left the house early that morning and went around to our corner store and bought the Gatorade. And while I was in the store, one of my friends from town, he came into the store and he said that a small airplane had just hit one of the towers. Mm. So everybody in the store said, wow, you're kidding. He goes, no, it's on television now. He said, so uh, he had said it was a small plane. So I brought the Gatorade home. I came right home and I came in the house and my son heard me and he called me in his room. He said, come in here. You have to see this. And I went in and he had the TV on. By that time, they had said it was uh, an airliner that hit the tower. So I sat in a room with him and we kind of watched on TV. And uh, shortly after that was uh, when the second plane hit the other tower. So it was just a, an amazing event going on you could hardly believe what was happening and then my son got a little worried with what was going on because my wife was at work sure he wanted me to call her and have her come home he was he was upset you know it was a just a a, a crazy thing to be watching and then of course it went on from there where it was the pentagon and then shanksville and it, it was really a horror uh, to see all that oh it definitely was now as a retired law enforcement person, how did you feel? Like, did you feel like uh, you needed to be 
involved in doing something when you heard this? Oh, yeah. I mean, right away, without, you know, without a doubt, I, I knew it had to be terrorism, uh, what was happening, coordinated like that all the way through. And the first thing you think about is, my God, what can I do? Uh, there were, you know, so many people involved in this thing and, uh, you know, everything goes through your mind. That's why at the time you saw so many young people enlisting in the military and uh, different things like that happening. But yeah, it was definitely a, a, a feeling of, uh, how can I help? Now you did end up helping. Let's, uh, let's have you take us through what happened next after the terrorist attacks and how did you end up getting involved? Well, I had a, a a friend of mine lived right behind me. He was on our, our local police department here where I live. And this was a few weeks after, uh, after the incident. And he come over and got a hold of me and said that the, uh, PBA was putting together teams to go over to ground zero to give assistance. Mm. And would I want to help out? So of course I said, yes, right away. So I met with him and, uh, got the equipment, you know, we needed to take with us. And uh, we went to a uh, PBA office down in, I think, Woodbridge it was. Mm -hmm. And they sent us over to Manhattan, and we went in teams. We had about, oh, I'd say there was probably eight police officers in my team. And uh, we went over there, and we, you know, everyone had to wear their identification around their neck, their badges, you know, and you had your weapon. And we got over there, and we were met by a NYPD lieutenant and a uh, police officer, mm -hmm. they became our our uh, correspondents, more or less. Mm -hmm. We had an area that we set up tents. There was already quite a few tents set up, and uh, we did set up tents that we could take a break in. We had a little trailer where we could eat, and the, um, what we did was it was amazing to see the amount of equipment that was donated so quickly, we had a flatbed trailer pull in by our area where we were staging, and it had four brand new four wheeler ATVs, and they were dropped off at our location. Those were for our use, and what we would do is we would take different uh, New York police officers to the pile and, and relieve someone and bring them back. And then there was other times of the day they had us stand security watches actually on the pile around the pile mm. believe it or not i mean there was there was tons and tons of uh first responders there, uh, helping out but you also had civilians and people that were there for nothing else to walk to see what was going on to maybe take a souvenir they were you know trying to walk up to the pile ride up to the pile on bicycles or get through the security we had some national guard troops were there helping us and plus, at that site, the Trade Center, there was an FBI building. They had uh, different things that were located in that building need to be secured. So there was it was quite a quite an effort, mm. and uh, that's why they had us, you know, do the various jobs of relieving the police officers, bringing them in and out, and because we could get into the site, and then they had a stand in uh, security watch around the pile itself. I'll tell you when I got there. Watching it on TV and seeing it on the news couldn't compare with seeing it in person. Mm. The destruction, the rubble, the just the thought of what has to be done here. It was still in a still in the phases of trying to recover anybody that that could be recovered. Um, 
and it was just just an amazing amazing task and it was unbelievable to see the stench and the smell that was through the whole city and where we were you're looking at new york city where i was once or twice where you were going through those streets and it was you know busy with cars and this that to see it just littered with papers and debris and uh white dust and powder over everything a few times when we were actually on the pile or doing security when we were up close with our atvs bringing the officers around there were still it was kind of a very eerie feeling because there was still cars vehicles uh, people's cars parked in parking garages mm -hmm. there was still uh, pocketbooks left on tables in in these coffee shops or restaurants it, it looked like something out of a sci-fi movie it was just unbelievable and i think one of the most uh, amazing sites for us where there was a lot of volunteers like i say us included working on that pile so you had firemen you had police officers port authority construction workers and there was a lot of noise and then all of a sudden it would get so silent that it was deafening and if they had found or located a fireman, the firemen were the ones to be able to bring that that body out of the pile. Mm. If it was a police officer, the police officers brought him out. You would hear this uh, amazing silence, and uh, you would see firemen coming off the pile with a stretcher with an American flag draped over it. And everybody, with, without any direction, everybody just snapped to attention and snapped to a salute until that body was brought off the pile and placed in a vehicle. It was just absolutely unbelievable. It must have been really emotional, you know, particularly oh. for the firemen or the police officers who were recovering those bodies. It must have been tremendously oh. emotional. And I guess the thing also was to stand there and watch this, and it wasn't very often mm -hmm. that this would happen where someone was recovered, but you're standing there trying to cope with Okay, that was one person that they just brought down. You're talking about thousands were in those buildings. Yeah. And where were they? Yeah, I remember thinking about you know the tremendous loss of life, and I remember people saying that even in New Jersey there were commuter parking lots that had cars sitting there for days, right? Because yeah. their their owners weren't coming back to get them. And uh, how long were you actually there? Marty? Uh, we were there several different times, but we were there. Uh, we spent two 24 hour days there, 22 24 hour shifts. And then on some days it was six hours or five hours or whatever we could uh, volunteer for. So we stayed up 24 hours around the clock and mm -hmm. we did like uh, two hours on, two hours off. And we just continued right on through the whole day to the next day. And like I said, we'd only take short little breaks or grab something to eat, and, and that was it. I mean, to see the sternness on the faces, to see firemen, you know, sitting there with the, taking a break with their heads bowed, and mm -hmm. police officers, and seeing men cry. I mean, it was unbelievable at the loss, the, the fire engines that were under the rubble, and knowing that their fellow firefighters or police officers were gone. It was a real emotional uh, scene. That, that was a heavy toll. Also, I told you about equipment being donated and sent there to the scene. I've never seen anything like this in my life. There must have been five or at six large, large flatbed trailers would come in 
and they had these large cranes that you see in the city, these big cranes were dismantled and would come in by truck and these construction workers assembled those cranes on the spot so that they could work on the pile removing the debris. They had steel workers and, and guys with torches and and, uh, I mean, to, to coordinate like that and get that equipment working and everything else was, it just showed you at that time to me also, there was, there was so, so much pride built up inside you because you're saying, you know, yeah, we got hit. We got hit bad here. We got surprised, but look what Americans can do. Yes. Yes. It was, a, this was a team working together. Yeah. S- sense of national spirit of, uh, coming it together, sure was. coming together and, Helping those who were hurt and yeah. you know, recovering those who uh, who were killed. I just think you must have felt. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you must have felt good in that you were able to participate, even though you had retired from law enforcement. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, how did you feel about that? Absolutely, and I'll tell you. You know, I'm a person of faith, and uh, uh, we said. Many, many, many prayers uh, at the time we were there. And um, one morning, we um, the sun had just come up, and uh, we were going out on our shift for the day. And as we entered the site, we stopped because there was something new, something that wasn't there before. And here, overnight, those steel workers found the most perfect cross, which was two big I-beams. You had a perfect cross made out of steel I-beams that they pulled out of the rubble and they mounted it high on just before you would enter the pile area. They mounted it high. So every time you walked in there, you would walk by this cross. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah, oh, really Marty. was. So you completed your term. So this took place over what, a couple of weeks or? Yeah, we were, like I say, on and off for, um, a few weeks we would do that whatever time you could give you'd sign up for and go over and go in and that's the way it worked but uh, a couple of us were able to do where we did the 24-hour shifts around the clock and we did that several times so in your group that you went with were you mostly uh, retired police officers uh yeah i think we had uh, maybe two or three with us that were still working still on the job and then uh, we had a, a one of the chief police chief was with us and um he was still active mm-hmm. and uh we had three or four of us uh, that were retired well thank you for your service and uh in doing uh, that and i'm sure that the nypd was grateful for any help from the pba and officers from new jersey and the other states who came in to help now marty that must have been a very emotional experience for you and uh Again, I think when you talk about the colossal amount of materials and just debris that there must have been, uh, the thoughts that that, you know, you had the recovery, which was the most important, but eventually that all had to be removed so that the city could right. sort of get back on its feet. And it, I think we, we don't think really how big a deal that that must have been to get rid of all the debris and of course in the most respectful way you cover remains and then also have to remove all the debris and dispose of it 
you know, I'm sure there was a lot of dust and, and things that you had to contend with there. And uh, yeah, just a huge effort. And I thank you for, for telling us about this because I, we hear about the events of 9-11 and uh, how it impacted us individually. Now, I want to ask you, Marty, how did your going into Manhattan and assisting in the recovery and cleanup process there, how did that impact your life? Well, every evening they would send us to um, New York City had a um, tractor trailer set up uh, and you would go in there and uh, they had their firearms unit there and they would clean all our weapons because they were filthy, filthy with the dust and debris that you were in mm. all day long. Mm. One day I was, I was there and having my weapon cleaned and I'm hearing a little bit of this conversation and I can see that this, this uh, one fellow standing there, he had a chain around his neck with a cross on it and all these, he was in tears and he was talking to another man and I'm standing there and I, I just reached down and I put my arm on his shoulder and I wanted him to know that you know, I kind of felt like he did. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we took away from that after we spoke a little bit, on the ride home when we were leaving the city, I thought about it and said, how how life is just so, so important and um, how quick it can be taken away. Yeah. So I, I think I had a whole new appreciation. on you don't, you don't think about that, that parents that had kids home you had husbands, wives, went to work, kissed your wife, said so long, I'll see you tonight, walked out the door, but that didn't occur. Mm. I just had a whole new appreciation for every breath you took every day because it can be taken away in a flash. Yeah, definitely. Marty, it's 20 years now since 9-11-2001. What are your thoughts now, 20 years later, about the whole event? Well, you know what? What makes me sad is um, I, I still feel the same way. I mean, and I think maybe in some ways too, you you really have to try to live your life for each and every day because you know tomorrow isn't promised to you. So you try to live your life every day. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, what makes me sad is that there are an awful lot of people in our country that have forgotten. Yeah that it's uh, an incident that happened and it's gone and it's over and they forget. Yeah. And I don't think that is a, an incident that happened. I don't think it's a, uh, an attack that happened in our country that should ever be forgotten. No. Also how we came together after that as a nation. Exactly. And uh, I think that's very important. Marty, I want to thank you so much for being a guest again on our show. And we, again, I appreciate your service to our country and the Navy and also as a police officer and for your relief efforts at ground zero after nine 11. Oh, my pleasure, James. And, uh, lots of luck with the podcast. I really enjoy it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there will too. Thanks Marty. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you. Before we sign off on behalf of your history, your story, my wife Kelly and I want to thank our guests, Neil, Amy, and Marty, and also Michael from last week's episode for bravely sharing their hearts and memories of an event that impacted their lives greatly. We are proud to be Americans, and we will never forget. So, 
For all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.